The Tonopah Test Range is a classified spot in Nevada operated by the Defense and Energy Departments. It was once the site for nuclear materials testing. Many veterans who worked at Tonopah in later years claim exposure to residual radiation has caused a variety of health problems. Now, a bill from Nevada Congressman Mark Amadell would compensate these veterans. My next guest did much of the research and documentation of the radiation effects, and the bill is named for him. Air Force veteran David Crete joins me now. Mr. Crete, good to have you on. Good morning, Tom. Thank you for having me. And just briefly, what did you do for the Air Force and when at this Tonopah range? So at Tonopah, at the base of Tonopah, I was an Air Force security policeman, which basically I was a cop up there. We provided security, operational security for the F-117 stealth fighter. A lot of that work is classified to this day, too, isn't it? Correct. To get there, you had to have a top secret security clearance and the plane's out. So we get to talk about it, which is pretty cool. It's pretty cool the day you got to go home and tell your wife what you did. Sure. And at that time, people were not aware of the history of what had happened at Tonopah? Correct. We had no idea. And what had happened and what was the downrange effect of that? So Nevada, there's an area of the range called NTS, Nevada Test Site, where it's common knowledge that there were nuclear tests that took place 50s up through 92. What wasn't known is the amount of fallout that we had there, as well as right on the range, there was testing that had taken place. There was a series of tests called Roller Coaster, which took place right around where we worked and slept. These were explosions? Correct. There was a series of tests that were conducted by the U.S. and British government to look at two things. One, what would the effects of a dirty bomb be? And what would be the effects of an accidental detonation? In other words, not a nuclear explosion, but an explosion that would spread nuclear material. Right. So in some sense, was a more concentrated type of testing than might have been from a bomb test. Yeah, I like I don't know all the science behind it. I've learned a lot, but according to the Department of Energy, it spread plutonium all over the place. Their words was Tonopah test range is contaminated. All right. And what about the health effects? How did you discover this? What got you onto this whole trail here? The advent of Facebook allowed many of us to find one another because when you leave assignments like that, and based on the fact that it was in the 80s, there were no cell phones and emails and things like that. So you lost touch. We all found one another through Facebook. And starting in about 2015, we started having reunions. We would all get together once a year and still do. At the first one, the conversation was, you know, we're all getting old. We all have these health problems. And the first thing that came up was these tumors. And most guys' tumors are benign, but we have a lot of them. And we started doing research on it and found that the type of tumor we have has an occurrence rate of one in a thousand. Over half of us have these. That's pretty simple math. That's not normal. And we started going further and further. And we found out that there's a lot of health problems that a lot of our guys have already passed away because of these health problems. Some people have no effect. And some of us have kids that were born with birth defects as a result of our exposure. All right. And then there's also the fact that the Clinton administration had issued an executive order compensating energy department employees at that site for radiation-induced illnesses and bad effects, but not Defense Department people, correct? Correct. There was a bill called EOIPA. There was another bill called RICA. And then there was an executive order by Bill Clinton 
And all of those dealt with everybody that had to do with anything out there, except for Department of Defense employees, military and contractors. We were all specifically exempted from the ability to receive benefit. We're speaking with David Crete. He's a former member of the Air Force's Security Police Squadron at the Tonopah Test Range in Nevada. And so then you were aware of this benefit for energy people, then thanks to the ability to connect with the high rate of incidence of radiation-related disease among your own members from DOD. What's the pathway from there to now a bill to compensate you and your colleagues? When we started doing this research about two years ago, we found out that the civilians were, one, being compensated, they'd received the medical stuff, and in fact, they had already proven that what we believe to be true, they proved it true. Then we started going down the path, what do we have to do? Because our roadblock is DOD admits the airplane was there, they admit the units were there, but they don't admit the people in the units. So if we go to file a claim, we can't prove exposure because they say we were never there. We're still to this day data masked, our records are blank. And so we can't prove any exposure, so we're denied benefits. Your records are blank because of the secret nature of the work there? Correct. I guess you'd call that a catch-22. It's exactly what it is. And that's where our problem lies. And when we've gone to the Department of Defense before, when through the VA, because the VA then goes to the Department of Defense going, hey, these folks are claiming exposure to ionizing radiation and whatever else. And they have cancers and kids have birth defects. And like, I have scarred lungs. Department of Defense goes, not possible. They weren't there. But would not the VA treat you just as a veteran for whatever condition you might have anyway? They treat us. I get treated for things, but you can't get certain levels of benefit. I mean, there's guys that can't work because of their disabilities, also can't get VA disability as a result of it. Because it was not service-related in the eyes of the VA. Got it. According to Department of Defense, it wasn't service-related. But the coincidence is they have hundreds and hundreds of people that all lived in Vegas that were all data masked at the same time with the exact same story. And Department of Defense says it's a coincidence. Yeah. So now you have a congressman, Mark Amodell from Nevada, and you're still in Nevada yourself, correct? Correct. I live in Las Vegas. All right. And what convinced him? I showed him the evidence that I had procured through various sources, all of it public sources. And I went to him and I said, look, This is where we were. Here's our base. It's been acknowledged to be there. The bases that are on the Nevada test range have been acknowledged. And here's Department of Energy reports saying that Tonopah test range is contaminated with plutonium. I guess I'm trying to find the bridge to where you were there and the people you know to be there. How can you prove it at this point? There must be a record that exists somewhere. It's just not being released by the Defense Department. Correct. And that's what we have to get through. We have to get the Department of Defense to say that we were there. The problem that the Department of Defense has in doing that is they have to admit that this place is, one, contaminated, and number two, they're still sending people there. Right. So it's almost like the burn pit situation as if they were still burning. Correct. And they're still sending people to take care of the burn pit. And that's become a presumed benefit, just like blue water napalm exposure and a number of other things in recent years that have become you know, presumed to be deserving of beneficiaries because that's what the law now says. Well, does the bill that is now before Congress, and gosh knows what kind of a chance it's going to have in the way Congress is now, does that also require the Defense Department to identify people that were there? 
Yes, that's exactly what we're asking is for them to say yes, that they were there and then to provide benefit for not only the military member, but like my son, my first son has neurofibromatosis. He was born with a tumor problem. That's a direct result of my exposure. And he grew up unable to get insurance. He has insurance now, but he's been faced his entire life with significant issues as a result, just because of me. An inherited problem almost because of your exposure, but the bill specifically would cause DOD to give up those records. Right. The bill's still in draft, but that's exactly what it's going to do. It's going to request that they give up those records. It's going to request the same benefit that the civilian DOE employees got for those family members that are affected. All we're asking for is the VA for a military member to recognize that we were there and did it and we have exposure. Got it. And do you have any sense of how many people are involved in numbers? Thousands, several thousand people. Because this was over decades. Correct. The initial military members that were stationed on the range go back to the 1950s and the U-2 project up to this day. There's people that drive out there, fly out there every day. David Crete is a former member of the Air Force's Security Police Squadron at the Tonopah Test Range, Nevada. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more about the pending bill at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a... um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from 
formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have 
you mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) So that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. That's brilliant. And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.